cool thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And all the things that I just said to this body of believers, you've told to us that our hope is in you, that there will be a day where these lowly bodies will be transformed into glorious bodies. And that's all because of you. It's because of what you've done and your incredible plan that there will be a day that we see you face to face, that our faith will become sight, that all of the burdens and difficulties and struggles, the death, the pain, the suffering, the sin, the temptation are all put away. They will be a distant memory and perfection will be ours to have all because of what you've done. None of this would be possible without your son. None of this would be possible without your incredible, undefinable grace. And none of this would be possible if you didn't give us the word of God, your word, through space and time so that we could hear it and believe it, that this incredible gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of your son, could be given to us so clearly. I thank you for that. It is an incredible gift. We don't deserve it, and yet here we have all of this incredible hope built within your word, and we we give you praise for it. We love you, Lord. Help us to understand it more today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so two weeks to go, and that's it. We're kind of coming in and landing the plane here. The last couple weeks, the last two chapters, last week, Pastor Kevin filled in for me. I was gone, as you know, on a missions trip. Missions, it was more of a... uh, kind of a service trip that I took with the high school kids, and it was wonderful. I just want to tell you right off the bat, it really, you know, you, you can imagine anticipating going and sleeping on the floor of a church for a week with a bunch of high school kids wasn't the most exciting thing in my mind as a selfish, self-centered, prideful man. I didn't want to do it, but think when you make a decision like that and you say, I'll lead this, you may go in reluctantly, sinfully, and I, I'm a sinner, and so I was thinking of myself all the time and comforts and all that, but let me just tell you, it really, it was an incredible experience to watch those students jump in, putting their faith into action and making it real, responding to the lessons I was giving them each night, and then their, their rebuttals back to me as they journaled. It was incredible. It was a really filling experience because um, you don't, I think I've mentioned this to you before. As a teacher, you don't always see results right away. You just don't see it. You, you, uh, my father-in-law and I ran a seal coating business in the summer. He's a Bible teacher. I'm a Bible teacher. He's been doing it twice as long as I have. But we liked it because you could immediately see, oh, that parking lot looks better right now. Right now, that looks better. After two, three hours, that looks better. When you teach school every day and you teach the Bible, it may take 10, 15, 20 years. But occasionally, like a trip like this, uh, one of the parents that came with us, um, I think he's served on our board in the past, and I I told him this struggle. I said, yeah, I love teaching Bible, but it's a struggle because sometimes you just don't see the results. And we came out of a session after we'd worked all day. I want to say it was after the second day of working for other people who were in need I delivered a lesson, the kids journaled, and they gave these incredible answers. I mean, to a person. There's 22 of these high school kids. And he walked out and said, do you see it now? And I said, yeah, I, I see it now. But that's the Holy Spirit working in him. So anyway, I just want to tell you what a great week that was. That's why I wasn't here last week. But Pastor delivered to us and ended with, and I, I, he, he had cut the video intentionally, so I'm not going to reshare that story, but a very powerful message, a very powerful message about the sacrifice and the cost of discipleship 
um, within this, uh, this girl's testimony who grew up in an Islamic home and was part of an Islamic family. And I just want to play off of that just for a second because it leads us into our week quite well. And uh, this is kind of what we're going to do today. So a quick review of that, and the review is really going to be just a step off of that story if you were here. And if you weren't, you should have been because it was really good. Um, And some of it's not on video, so show up. Uh, And then the idea of what it means to be a courageous Christian, what that means and how important it is. And just to give you a heads up, this is not something you do on your own. I could not be a courageous Christian, nor could you, if it were not the... From, if it were not for the fact that we have the Holy Spirit to help us do that. That is not in us. Ask Peter. He thought he was pretty courageous the night of the crucifixion, the morning of. Real courageous. As a matter of fact, all these guys, they're going to do but not me. But he didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. A believer, but he didn't have it. So I don't want you to think of this as being something in you, but it's something in, of, of who's in you. And then we'll transition into this second to the last chapter of what the world's doing Uh, to those who would oppose the new progressive view of things that continues to change is vilification to disparage you to attack you verbally to or or with written word to go after your character and then our response to that because that's not a new phenomenon by the way christians being vilified for what we believe or what we will not support that's not a new phenomenon so the the bible's given us a lot of information as to what to do to respond to that and then within there, some of the issues, how we deal with this and where we should stand and, and, and uh, what we should do. And then the sin problem that we really have. This is the heart of the issue. We've discussed this before a few times, but the concept that the problems are any, everything but sin. That's what you hear today. There's all kinds of issues and there's reasons for it that is usually, by the way, it's, you're usually the reason. You, you who are sitting in here, me too. We're usually the reason, as you can imagine, but that isn't the reason. It's sin that's the reason, and then our response to that. So that's kind of where we're going today, and um, to kind of start with this, we're going to start with this concept of a courageous Christian, and this is going to, we're going to jump off of uh, last week. To get you going here, and I'm going to start with a quote, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. So you go to Matthew chapter 10. And I'm going to play off of Pastor's finish, his strong finish last week, which was, uh, made a real impact as I listened to that testimony. And it made me think, I've got to start here. And I'm going to start with a quote from the end of that chapter. So as you turn there, I'm going to read this quote from Lutzer's book at the end of the last chapter, page 223. And although Pastor did not quote this entire thing, he referenced it. So let me read it. Here's what Lutzer says on 2.23. You should be in Matthew 10. But here's what it says. On one occasion, after terrorists killed many Christians in Egypt, I'm told that young Christians in Cairo marched down the streets with T-shirts emblazoned with the words, Martyr by Request. Wow, that's bold. I'm not sure that we in America would have that kind of courage. Truth, Truth be told, we're often unwilling to give up any comforts, let alone our lives. I just mentioned to you and confessed to you how how unexcited I was to go on this missions trip, this service trip to proclaim the gospel because I didn't want to sleep, not in my bed, you know, just think it's, or where, we didn't know where we were going to sleep, but I, I wanted to sleep in my bed because I didn't want to give up a comfort. That's how we are, let alone our lives, back to the text. We probably will not be faced with martyrdom here in America. 
probably is the key word. I don't know that. I wouldn't make that claim to you. But I would say probably is a good way to say that. It's possible, though. We may not face martyrdom here in America, but we have to ask whether the church will be courageous enough to withstand the cultural and legal pressures that secularism is determined to impose upon us, and this is making reference to Islam from last chapter, Islam expands its influence and asserts its rights, rights which so often conflict with our rights. Will political correctness, and this is where this really helps us to this week, will political correctness and laws that prohibit the criticism of Islam, blasphemy laws, paralyze the church? So the political correctness focus here is what I'm going to talk about. Certainly, we talk about that with regards to Islam and its spread thereof, and it's kind of an ironic thing. Pastor made mention of this last week as well, how the left could, and the progressive left, can just absolutely call us every name in the book because of the principles that we hold to here, and especially with regards to, let's say, women's rights. But on the flip side of that, they would love, they love to support Islam, which is absolutely horrific when it comes to women's rights. So it's kind of an ironic thing, but we understand that you know, you know, people who have the same enemies somehow become allies, and that's a little bit of what we're dealing with here. And remember, they're viewing us as enemies. We don't want to view them as enemies. So if you're in Matthew chapter 10, I want you to be there. And I want to kind of, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Last night I was reviewing my notes and I told my boys as we were watching a basketball game, I said, oh boy, I could spend a lot of time here and I'm going to have to discipline myself not to do that. And they said, good luck. So they know me well. But you're in Matthew chapter 10. Let me just start in verse 16. Jesus is telling his apostles that persecution's coming. I'm going to dance around this a little bit. I'm not going to read all of it. Some of this has got eschatology language in it. It certainly has to do with the Lord's return, especially as we focus on verse 23, which we're not going to do. But verse 16 says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I had to read that passage. That is exactly what you are. First of all, you are his sheep. We are, dis- we are described as sheep. And we're really even less than sheep. My dad used to tell a story. I may have mentioned this in this class even. Um, When my dad was a kid, our farm was a fully inclusive farm, as many were, had animals of all types. And his responsibility was the sheep and bringing them in from the pasture and back into the barn. And he liked to mess with them because they were stupid. And as they're walking in, these sheep just keep following each other, and he'd put a stick in the entrance and you know the sheep would jump over and he'd do that for a few and then he'd pull the stick and they'd just keep jumping over a invisible stick because that's how stupid they are i think it's fitting that god calls the sheep from that perspective i think the distance between us and them and him is even greater but i think i think there's a reason for that but back to this anyway that's just a side story on sheep I'm ascending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's certainly where we are today. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I want that to be kind of our thought process as we go into this chapter today. We understand that we are under attack. We will be under attack. We are under attack as we live in this world today. But it's also important that we be wise in understanding what what our job is here. And how important it is that the time and place that you live in and I live in and where you work and who's in your subdivision and who's in your family, as we'll see today, how important it is that you be wise, that you be cunning, that, not, that, you, that you, be, you be up on God's word, that you're sharp, that you're ready to give an answer for the hope that you have within you. 
Okay, so just moving back down here, and I'm going to pick this up at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So we're going to talk about vilification today. They call Jesus of the devil. There is no one on planet earth who has ever walked that is further from the devil than Jesus Christ, and that's what they called him. They said, you, are, you can do this because you have the power of Satan in you. How far off could the world be? And he said, listen, if they say that about me, imagine what they're going to say about you. The words that they're going to use and the names they're going to call you, you better get used to it, Jesus said. 2,000 years ago, he said this. There was no social media back then. That was face-to-face. There was some written word, but just think about how, how easy it will be for you to be called names in our day and age. So he says this. I love the conclusion. Says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, you say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. This is not a suggestion by Jesus that we occasionally preach the gospel. He's telling you, proclaim it boldly all the time. You're hearing this because you you've been saved, you've been redeemed. You've been, by grace, you've been saved through faith. Now you tell people about it. And you're going to be vilified for it, but you tell people about it. Verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's talking about himself, clearly. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than, any, than many sparrows. He's trying to give us an understanding that, yes, there's difficulty coming. You will be attacked, but I've got you in my hands. Wow, what an incredible encouragement. Is there a greater one? For me, there isn't. I prayed earlier because the elders had prayed earlier, and we'd referenced just this hope that we have. Man, when we have our eyes on the eternal, it really gives us that motivation that we need, no matter what the difficulty is in front of us. We know he has us in his hands. The plans he has for us are beyond our understanding. Incredible to think about that. So I'm going to bring this up on the, te- on the screen now in case you don't have your Bibles. So fear not, you're more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Strong, strong language that I've used before And we don't get to give ourselves a a bailout on this. True believers do not deny his name. They are conquerors. They are overcomers. Once again, this is not in your own strength. You can do this. You cannot deny his name. You can have the courage and the, the fortitude to do this because the Holy Spirit empowers you to do it. But you trust that. You set it in your mind. You resolve in your heart, as Daniel did, that you will not sin against the Lord, that you will not deny his name. So there is a dual role here you play a part in it but the holy spirit's going to give you the strength to do it then he says this verse 34 don't think that i've come to bring peace to the earth i've not come to bring peace but a sword this is what connects last week to this week for i have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law a person's enemies will be those of his own household boy if you heard that story last week does that just reverberate that's what, that's what it's about. A choice had to be made. 
Now, this is sad when we think about it. It hurts when we think about it, but we understand that it's the only choice to be made. Jesus Christ serving him wholeheartedly, and that's the only type of service he will accept. Wholehearted service is worth everything, including your family. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is the first time Jesus references the term cross to his, to his apostles. And they knew it very well. We don't know it very well. We know it from Jesus. They knew it because they saw it all the time. They saw what kind of suffering and difficulty and pain and what kind of agony, which is where the word comes from, that people went through that were on that cross. And he's saying, I want you to think that way when you're serving me, that it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and it may cost you everything and it may hurt, but it's worth it. He tells them, to take up their cross. First time they've heard that, and I'm sure it shocked them to hear that that terminology. Then he goes on to say, whoever does not take his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the middle of this, he's quoting Micah 7, 6. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. When we think about father and mother going against, you know, daughter-in-law, son-in-law, and people within their own household being enemies of one another, this was a prophetic prophetic quotation here that he's saying i'm fulfilling this following me is going to cause this so i say all of this for this reason we have to be willing to make the difficult decisions with regard to god's word in the midst of a world where we will be called names for doing so here's the deal this could happen within your own house and maybe it is happening within your own house it could very well be happening within your extended family where you're being more and more and more set aside because of your, oh, antiquated, old, um, bigoted views based on God's word, and you're you're kind of considered the hateful one in your family. That can happen even within your your own house now, maybe within your kids. And Mindy had this come up on her phone this week, and I thought, ooh, this, this could be interesting, because I gave you a statistic earlier this year when we talked about this, if you might remember this, the 75% of kids left the church by the time they became 18 or out of college. So 18 through 29. So 75% of, of children who grew up in the church or were considered Christians left the church or left their faith by the time they were 18 to 29. And so this, this study that was done, and this was done by, and I got this out of an article from Josh Darnett who his, uh, his website is called kidsministryscience.com. And here's his conclusion. I think this is fascinating. Because the reason I'm, ta- I'm talking about this is you're going to have to make tough calls, but I know, I know in the heart of, your heart of hearts, but how can we keep our family focused on God's Word? How can we keep that next generation? I'm looking at some eyes out here who are in a very similar situation as me. You still have kids in the house. And some of you have grandchildren who... Your children have kids in the house. How can we keep them from being part of this statistic? How can we keep Matthew 10 from happening in your small little household? We know it's going to happen. It's fulfilled prophecy. It's going to happen. It happened to that young lady in her household that was a uh, Muslim household. But what about you? It's an interesting thing, and I thought it's worth sharing. Hopefully you can see this. There are five steps this study said that the 25% who do not fall away, look at what it said. I found this fascinating. I'm just going to take a little time on this, 
It's a little off the beaten path, but I think it's so relevant to what we're talking about here. Number one, and hopefully you can see this. If not, I'll read it to you. The families that did not lose their children to the world, number one, they ate dinner five out of the seven nights weekly with their family. Something as simple as that. Ate dinner with their family. Number two, they served with their families in a ministry. So you, you intentionally got them involved to help other people. In the name of Jesus Christ. Very interesting. Number three, they had a spiritual experience in the home during the week. You talked about the Lord. You, you made mention of something that you'd heard. You put, you put the world's issues through the lens of Scripture at the dinner table. Probably happened in number one. Maybe you had a, a devotion together. Maybe you watched some sort of television show that you could reference God's Word from. Maybe you talked about the, the message from Sunday or Wednesday night. I don't know. But they had some sort of spiritual experience. Maybe you gave them advice from God's Word that would then lead them to the, a God, God-fearing, God-like decision. Number four, they, entrusted responsibility in, they were entrusted with responsibility in ministry at an early age. You put them in a position where they, they were going to do something in the name of Jesus to help maybe younger kids, maybe to help, maybe to help older people, maybe to uh, put them in a position where they could, they could serve people in the name of Christ. You put them in a position where they had to sacrifice for the name of Jesus. And then number five, they had at least one faith-focused adult in their lives other than their parent. Somebody else. And how do you find that? Could be at a place called church. It might be at a place called church where there's other people who are like-minded because you're unified in the word that are influencing your kids, talking to them, asking them about that, holding them accountable, giving them opportunities to do you know, a few of these other service-based points, and it said that the, the ones who did those things, they were amongst that 25%. So this is kind of off the beaten path, but I think it's relevant. Because I don't want Matthew 10 to be true in my house. It's going to be true. You're going to be ostracized in your own family, but I know you don't want your kids to be in that situation. Now, once again, I'm going to say this right off the bat. Some of you are saying, listen, I did all that, and my kid's still not. I, I, I'm not saying that I can give you a perfect formula. Salvation is in God's hands. I will repeat this. You cannot make someone believe, including your own kid. You can make them say things. You can make them do all this. You can sit them down and have them eat pizza with you five out of the seven nights of the... You can do that. That's not a guarantee. I'm just giving you the numbers. And this is a pretty good formula for teaching them the way that they should go. It's a good formula. So I know we've hit that a few times, and I just think it's it's just interesting. It came up this week, and I thought, I need to share this with you. Very interesting article. Okay. All that said, let's move on to some scripture here and let's talk about this courage that we have to have to stand and be an example to our kids so that they see what it looks like. I want you to turn here as well, and I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I know it's up on the screen, but I want to get context for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's 25 minutes in already. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5. I just thought that was worthwhile and so practical. Take that to your home. So good. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Everybody turn there for me. Let's look at the context of this. The context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is making reference to this lowly tent that we're calling our body. Tent is a perfect word for that because tents are temporary. Tents are not permanent. You don't usually make your your, uh, dream home plans based on a tent that you can put up in a few minutes. 
These are temporary things. So if we wouldn't make our dream home based on a tent, we're not, we're not to make our dream future based on this world either. That's the way I would look at this. So if we look at the context, verses 1 through 4, and I just wanted you to see this, verse 4 specifically says, For while we are still in this tent, the body, we groan being burdened, not, not, we would, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. See, we understand to a degree that there is a lot of joy and fulfillment in living for Christ here on earth. I hope you feel that. When you serve the Lord in this lowly body, this broken one, that there is a benefit to this. Of course, we're going to hear Paul make reference to this, to live as Christ but to die as gain later on today. You know that famous quote. There is a benefit to living for Christ right now in this lowly body, but man, I'll bet you feel a longing to unload this one, this sinful one, this one that gives in to temptation, this one that is selfish, this one that has ego problems, this one that continues to struggle with the flesh. Do you feel the burden? I do. That we want something greater. Look at verse 5 as we go forward, or finishing verse 4. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's true life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I talked about that earlier. So we are always of good courage. Do you see that? Because of the hope that we have, because of the fact that we know there will be a day where this, this mortal body will take on immortality, 1 Corinthians 15, we know that that's going to be the case. Because of that, we have good courage. We understand that we have something greater. We understand that the Spirit is a guarantee. Because of that, we have good courage. The eternal perspective, if you notice my title to this one, equals courage. It gives us the courage that we need. Let me finish the text. So it says, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. He says it again. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's what we want to do. Our aim is to please the Lord. Yeah, we need that courage to do it, but that courage that we get comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the hope that we have. It comes from the eternal perspective. So courage is necessary. we got to have it. From the book, this is just a little quote from Zwingli. You might know Zwingli. He's one of the reformers that was in Switzerland, and I love this quote. It, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a small thing that, that Lutzer picked up on, but then he followed it up with this uh, courage armed with trust is our calling. Zwingli said this, that for God's sake, do something courageous. And he's talking to Christians. Come on, do something courageous. And it's for God's sake intentionally. It's for his sake. Remember what we just read. Our aim is to please the Lord. For his sake, do something courageous. It's a cool quote. It's a good one to remember. And so Lutzer then follows that up on that page with courage armed with truth is our calling. So it's not courage because you're bold. It's not courage because you have all the ideas. You have courage because God's word is true and you know it. You know it because it saved you, as I prayed earlier. You know it because it's given you all this hope and encouragement, the things we just read about the future. You know it because it's proven itself true in your own testimony. You know it because you see the testimony of other believers around you. You know it because you have peace when other people don't. You have contentment when other people don't. You have joy when other people don't. All of this is because of God's word. That's where you found that out. 
And here's what Paul says in Philippians 1. You don't need to turn here, but it says this. I know that through your prayers and help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul thinks God's going to sustain me. The word here that he uses right here in the middle of deliverance is salvation. So we know that Paul ultimately loses his head for the faith. Ultimately loses his head. So you look at this and say, does Paul know that he's going to somehow get saved from his current situation i don't think he knew that i don't think that's any different than shadrach meshach and abednego is it in daniel 3 see when they went up to nebuchadnezzar they didn't know for sure that god was going to sustain him through the fire because remember right in the middle it's one of my favorites but if not we still aren't going to worship that we're our faith is still going to be in god i think paul's sentiment here is is this I don't know what the deliverance is going to look like, but he's going to deliver me. That may be in the next life. That may be giving me the courage that I need. That may be the strength. I don't know. When he uses that term, it's really more salvation. I know it belongs to him. Paul ultimately goes through a lot of suffering for the Lord. He isn't delivered from all of it. He is sustained through it. Very important. So verse 20 as it is my eager expectation to hope that I will not at all be ashamed. That's the real focus. I really want to have the courage to not be ashamed of the gospel. But that with full courage, once again we see the same word. Full courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That's his aim. So he told us that earlier in 2 Corinthians. His aim is to please the Lord. In this body, out of the body, that's what it is. Life or death, it doesn't matter. I think he give us, gives us in context that he doesn't believe guaranteed the deliverance means he's going to be delivered from pain. He may go through it. Certainly, he's going to go through ridicule and, and, and people attacking him both verbally and physically. He understands for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. The perspective is eternal. The perspective is eternal. So courage armed with truth. This is the truth that we hold to. This is what it's about. So this idea of vilification. That terminology just simply means somebody attacking you verbally or with words to destroy your character or your perceived reputation. That's what it is. That's vilification. And that is what the tactic, the tactic of, of the enemy, and I mean the enemy in Satan and his fallen angels who are the God of this world, that is their tactic against the church. And we can't let that happen. We can't let that affect us. We can't let that be a problem. Here's what Lutzer says about this, page 226. If you're there in your books, here's what he says. And I'll read this to you, but I think this is extremely important. He's quoting David Horowitz, who is a Jewish man, not a Christian. He's a Jewish man, and the book he's referencing here, Dark Agenda, this is the full title of the book, which he doesn't mention in, Lutzer doesn't mention in his book. It's The Dark Agenda, The War to Destroy Christian America. This Jewish man understands the value of the Christian America that he's lived in. The values that were put into play when this country was designed, that the Judeo-Christian ethic that was put into place from the beginning until most recent years. Here's what he says. He writes this, the left has no conscience or restraint when it comes to destroying people who stand in its way. The war began with the removal of the religious presence from Americans, America's public schools. Since then, it has only grown more divisive and intense. The radicals are viscerally intolerant of anyone who does not agree with their view of tolerance. They insist on nothing less than being celebrated by all members of society, including within our churches. 
arguments about natural law, questioning the wisdom of letting homosexuals adopt children, arguments in favor of the traditional family. None of these are up for discussion. You guys have noticed this. Their argument is simply stated. Those who oppose any aspect of LGBTQ rights are bigots. And bigots deserve to be ostracized and, if possible, punished. That's what they want. So you know this quote, and then you're probably thinking, you like to throw in articles from what's going on. Could you possibly predict what I might be talking about that's in the news this week? You Mickey Mouse fans, Disney production coordinator says this this week. I got this just yesterday, by the way. A a, a video was released of this production coordinator who is in charge, or at least he's on the board, of what media Disney lets out to the world. And in a video conference, in our days of video conferences, they can now be videotaped and recorded. Here's what he said in this. He said, queer stories, and he used that term. Queer stories are helping us get the message out through the media. We want to tell stories to children about homosexuality to normalize it. Just to read a little bit of this to you, this this, this particular man. He's a production coordinator of Disney. He spoke in a video conference with other company employees that queer stories coming out of the media Titans library. Speaking of this, he says he describes the effects that bisexual, trans, and other sexual orientations in children's media could have to show kids that it is now normal. That's now normal. And so they're going to use their, the power of the Disney mountain, whatever it is, this massive media mogul of Disney to change what's normal with your little kids, with your little kids. So just moving on, this is the video clip of it. He says that is committed to exploring queer and promoting trans, bisexual, and gender non-conforming characters. Says kids are getting information from the media, and there's a lot of that. Okay, he wants to use that, and he wants to push that agenda. So that was just yesterday. This, this article, I just threw this up this morning, and I actually sent it. That resent my slides. I said, we got to throw this in here. And if you don't buy into this, and this is all, by the way, this is all because it's in reaction to this HB 1557 bill in Florida that you've heard about. It seems reasonable. Here's the bill. A kindergarten through third grade teacher shouldn't try to convince or influence a kindergarten through third grade student that there's something other than a boy or a girl. Seems reasonable. Seems like a good law. They're fighting against that. No, no, no. A kindergarten through third grade teacher, no matter what their viewpoint, should have the right to influence your child to think that they're a girl if they're a boy and a boy if they're a girl and at kindergarten that they're a homosexual. Just imagine that. That seems reasonable, but Disney didn't think it was reasonable, so they're going to say, well, we're going on the attack. We're more powerful than that, and we're going to put this into our cartoons. Just think about that. This is, and if you don't agree with it, you're a bigot. Crazy world that we live in. Crazy world that we live in. So what do they want? They want you to just get along. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to tell you, you can't just get along. Okay? I'm not going to tell you. The Apostle Paul is going to tell you. He's not going to tell you. God, the God of the universe is going to tell you. You cannot just get along. This is the problem that we're facing right now. The concept to just get along. Now, you know that Vody, I've quoted Vody a few times, and I'm going to use his quote next week, so I won't steal from my own, my own slides from next week. But he does make the quote, the 11th commandment is just be nice. 
I, I uh, took a class on apologetics for my MDiv last year, and I had to do multiple papers on apologetics, and I liberally used Vody Bauckham's book on apologetics, uh, Answering Objections with the Power of the Word is the title of that book, by the way, which is just what we're talking about. But he talks about that 11th commandment. I'll get to it next week. But if you're in Romans chapter 1, you know what Romans 1's about, right? The debased mind and the judgment that is on the world because... The world has refused to acknowledge the Creator and that He is responsible for all of this. So then we go down this path of horrible sexual sin and thought and mindset and the debased mind to do what they ought not do. God gives them over to it. We see this three times in the first 26 verses. But where I want to pick this up is at the end of chapter, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So if you begin to think in your head, oh yeah, that's them. No, no, it's more than that. Look at what it says starting here in verse 32. It should be there approximately verse 28 goes, kind of sets us up for this. Speaking of these people who have gone down this path of just accepting all these things, practicing all these things, and we as the casual Christian observer are watching all of this, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but we'll look, look at that, but give approval to those who practice them. That that is going to be an important piece. Here we sit in a world today where it's not enough to just say, fine, do what you want. No, no, you've got to say it's right. It's now required of Christians to say, we think this is right. Homosexuality is right, transgender is right, you name the, the, the sin. You have to say it's okay. Not just do what you want. It's in God's hands. No, no, you have to give us the, the stamp of approval. And God says, oh, no, you don't. Don't give approval to those who practice. Therefore, you have no excuse. Keep reading. Oh, man, every one of you who judges for and passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's talking about your heart. Did you give approval to that? Are you saying that that's, well, I don't do that. No, but God cares about the heart. Is in your heart, do you say, I give approval to that? Is that what you're saying? This is chapter 2, by the way. Uh, we're transitioning into we know that the judgment of god rightly falls on those who practice such things do you suppose oh man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself you're giving approval to them that you will escape the judgment of god or do you presume on the riches in the of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that god's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance now he's there's there's a lot going on here i think he's talking to the church i think he's talking to people who claim to be christians Certainly some who are not because they need to repent, but I think that there's some Christians who have to repent and say, I am not putting my stamp of approval on this. This is not the only passage, by the way. Let's hit a few more as we go along. You should be in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'm not going to spend much time here, but 1 Corinthians 13. I think this is interesting. This is the love chapter. My wife and I were just talking about the lesson this morning on our way in, and she mentioned that she didn't know what passages I would use. She said, you know... The world has this all twisted up. She said, you know, when we call out sin, it's called hate, but it's the most loving thing we can do. And look at what's in the middle of the love chapter. Talking about what love is. I love this. She didn't know I was going to use this passage, but she was right. Seems as though she must have read her Bible once or twice. says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Look at this. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice in that. It doesn't celebrate it. Back to Romans 1, it doesn't approve it. 
It doesn't approve of wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth, right back to God's word. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What I think is interesting, you'll hear people on the left use verse 7 a lot. See that? Oh, you bear all things, you believe all things, you endure it all. I mean, it's all good because we're all just loving each other. They skip the part of rejoicing and wrongdoing. Because wrongdoing is defined in Scripture and it's very clear what's wrong and what's right. It's obvious as the way Paul would put it. And then what do we see in Ephesians chapter 5? I do want you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 5, context again. The context of Ephesians chapter 5 is probably within the church because he is writing to a church. So when we look at this, this is dealing with people who are embracing sexual sin within the church or who are claiming to be Christians. But this goes beyond that. Ephesians chapter 5, you know it well, I'm assuming, because this is what we kind of look to when we're talking about how do we deal with somebody who is, who is struggling in a sexual sin and yet nobody's talking to them about it. So here's what it says, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Can't even be named among you as proper. Don't put your stamp of approval on it. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. The talk about, about what's right and wrong today could fall into that category. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't become partners with them. And once again, I'll have to tap into my wife, her famous uh, uh, quote to my boys when they're hanging out with friends that may or may not be believers is, what does lightness have to do with darkness? Be careful now. Be careful. Make sure your light is shining bright. But here's what he says. Don't become partners with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Interesting. Expose them. Christians are the only ones who really know the truth. Isn't that true? We're the only ones. We're the only ones that really understand what's right and wrong because we're the only ones that believe this is eternal, it's divine, and it comes directly from God. Who else believes that? Nobody. Think about it just for a second. Is there anybody else on planet Earth that looks at Scripture in the right way other than Christians? The answer is nobody does. You could be a good Jewish scholar like Horowitz. He still doesn't look at this correctly. And he likes it, but he doesn't look at it correctly. You could be a very moral man or a woman who, who likes the principles of Scripture, but you're still not looking at this right if you're not a God-fearing, redeemed, transformed by the Holy Spirit because Jesus saved you, follower of Christ. You're the only one. So it is your job to expose this. You don't just get along. We can't just get along. 2 Corinthians 6, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I know it's easy to just be kind. Back to, back to Vody's quote. I know that 11th commandment is strong. It doesn't exist, by the way. If I keep saying 11th commandment, there is no 11th commandment that be kind. I'm getting ahead of us. But that is strong. That pull is strong. Just be kind. Just get along. No, don't be unequally yoked with a non-believer. Now, we use this for marriage all the time, but this is true of our relationships 
What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship with light and darkness, as I mentioned? What accord has, has Christ with Belial? By the way, that's an ancient term for Satan. Satan, once again. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we, all, we are all temple, temples of the living God. So this is very clear in Scripture to me. There's no doubt about it that we've got to be different. Okay? And so as we consider this, and I'm going to wrap this up, next week we're going to start with, well, what's our response to that? Because you notice that the last chapter is strengthen what remains. How do we respond to this vilification in the world that is so against the truth of God's word? What is our response to this? How do we react to it? We know we stand strong on truth. We know we have to. But is, it, is it that it? Is it? We just say this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. No, there's more to it than that. There's more to, we have to stand strong. Don't misunderstand me. But then how do we deliver that beautiful message of mercy and grace How do we talk about forgiveness? How do we talk about our Lord who is our life? How do we get across to them what's most important? That there is one who can transform your horrible, terrible, death-leading existence into something that is life and beautiful. That's our job. And we'll, we'll start there next week. We'll start with good news next week. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you for the strong message of what your word teaches us, that we have nothing to do with darkness, that we have to stand strong on your word. But I pray that we don't leave it just at that. And although we haven't talked about this yet, we understand that we have the incredible opportunity as your ambassador to deliver the good news. It's good news for a reason. It's the best news. And I pray that we are willing and able and always ready to deliver that news to the falling, dying, lost world. This dark world that we live in, they're not the enemy. We know that the, the God of this world is. And I pray that we are always ready to go on the fight and defend the faith. Help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.